0: And now hear God's holy word from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel. Hear now God's holy word. Then Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says Yahweh God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your keeping. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little... I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of Yahweh to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this sin. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh has also put away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we do give you humble thanks for your word and for all of its instruction, uh, for the way it preserves us in, in faith, for the way it corrects us and admonishes us. Father, today as we enter this study of your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to every one of us. Use these words and use this time of teaching to to change us, to transform us, to make us a people who seek your face, who seek your mercies and do not cover our sins with uh, with our own plots and conspiracies, but that we open it up and we expose our sin to you so that you can cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, I think uh, if we uh, were to sit around a table and talk about uh, our customer service experiences over our lifetimes, we would all be able to come up with a customer service horror story. In fact, we often like sharing these with each other, right? Often with righteous indignation, our customer service horror stories, I can't believe after all that they left off the pepperoni, or, you know, I called and called and called and my package never was, my package never was found. We, we deal with these sorts of things all the time, and some of them are more grievous than others, and some of them make our lives more complicated, but... We uh, have to live with a sense of, of continual you know, grace and understanding that there are things that happen that are outside of our control, things that happen that are outside of other people's control. Sometimes people just make mistakes and things go wrong. And so we, we have to adopt this, this orientation that I'm not really all that upset when something goes wrong. You know, if, if you know, they lose my luggage or... My stake is overdone. You know, I'm I'm not going to get twisted around the axle over that. Don't get upset. The question is, at least for me, the question is always, okay, something went wrong. How are we going to fix it? Now what? That's the question, really, when it comes down to it. How are we going to set things right? When we turn around the light of scrutiny and shine it on ourselves, the matter for all of us is not... Whether uh, we're uh, going to mess up and sin, we are. It's not if we're going to disappoint other people. We are. You have all disappointed someone. You have all sinned against someone. There's a kind of person who is perpetually offended uh, against other people and all of the crimes that they've committed against them, but they themselves feel like they've never done anything to anyone else. And that's sort of a a self-absorbed Uh, perspective we all have sinned against other people we have all made other people's lives uncomfortable the matter for us is not if we're going to do this we are the question is how have you disciplined yourself to make things right do you have a liturgy of forgiveness a liturgy of of reconciliation a liturgy of restitution when when it happens when you sin what are you going to do when you're confronted with your sin now that's the question. Are you going to cover it up? When, when you have sinned, are you going to pretend like it didn't happen? Uh, do you let that inner lawyer kick in? We all have an inner lawyer on retainer. He's always there who helps us justify what we did. He helps us justify what we said and cast it in the best light. And then, and then he always deflects any, any valid uh, 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 confrontation. He deflects and, and, and he points out the sins of other people as as he justifies our our own actions. Is that what you're going to play games? Are you going to cover it up? Are you going to deflect? Are you going to point out somebody else's sin and how, how their sin is so much bigger than yours and really you need to pay attention to their sin rather than yours? Is that is that your MO? Is that your liturgy? Is that your practice when confronted with your sin, when your sin is exposed? Is that what you do? You you covered up or deflect? Or do you deal with it? Have you learned to head on, straightforward, frankly, deal with your sin and say, you know what? You're right. I sinned. I messed up. And more than that, I hate my sin. I can't imagine how that made you feel. I can't imagine what that did to you. I did something wrong. I hate my sin. And I don't have any excuse I repent, please forgive me and tell me what I need to do to make it right. Is, 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 have you learned how to do that? Have you taught your children how to do that, that that's how Christians deal with sin? You see, it's not that we're perfect, it's not that we're sinless, it's that we have the gospel and the gospel method of dealing with sin, which is repentance and restoration. We, we deal with it and we, we move on. Now, we all know the story of David's fall, we all know the story of his sin with Bathsheba. We read that last week. It was not a small thing. It was not a customer service foible. It wasn't a small offense. Last, last week we, we read it and reflected on it, but we had to stop in the middle of the story. And I have to confess that after last week at uh, church, I, I felt this um, little gnawing uh, weirdness inside of me that we stopped in the middle of that story because it was not the end. I had to find a, I had to find a stopping place but I kind of felt weird all week by, by just kind of leaving it hanging there. Uh, it didn't feel right. So now we get to come back. We, we have seen him fail, and now we're dealing with the, now what? Now what happens? He sinned. It became a public matter because Bathsheba was pregnant. So everyone knows what's going on, and yet instead of dealing with it fortrightly, he plotted to cover up his sin. First, he tried to get Uriah to come home and spend time with his wife, and maybe that would cover it up. And then he put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle where he was certain to die in combat. David's covering of his own sin worked about as well as Adam's covering his nakedness with fig leaves, which is to say it didn't work at all. It didn't work at at all. But it doesn't look like David's going to repent on his own. He's had time. He's had time to repent, and he's not fixing it. He's not getting it right. So the Lord sends him Nathan the prophet. The Lord demonstrates his love toward David by sending him Nathan. And now Nathan uh, comes to him. in in a way that it shows us the Lord is not going to allow David to to remain comfortable. The Lord is going to expose the sin that David is trying to cover up so desperately. But, But he exposes it so David doesn't settle down into it and think that this is normal. So the prophet Nathan comes to David and he talks to David in a way that draws out David's guilt. He skillfully leads David to confess his own actions and his own guilt and condemn his own actions. Again, it's been a while after the sin has taken place. Bathsheba carried the child to term, David's child. She carried the child to term and she gave birth. So it's been at least nine months since this sin. At least seven months, maybe eight months since the death of Uriah. David has had more than enough time to make things right. And he's failed to do it. He's failed to repent. Now, I think we all know this story so well that if I had to sit down right now, just about any one of you could come up and walk us through the rest of the story and tell us what happened. You could finish this lesson. It's so familiar. But but let's let's read it again and, and see this week how how this fits in the entire story of David that we've been studying so far. Uh, Nathan, the prophet, comes to David, comes to the king, and he tells him a story about a heartless rich man who has lots of flocks and herds, but he visits a poor man and, and takes this lamb that was this man's pet and, and kills and slaughters the lamb and eats it at a feast. Now, when David hears this story, David is enraged. He's livid. And it turns out that it's just a parable about what David had, in fact, done to his neighbors, Uriah and Bathsheba. This man didn't exist. This is a story. And David responds with vehement anger. A few details about this parable. In verse 3, the little ewe lamb, by the way, a ewe is a female lamb. A ewe is always female. A little boy ram is a ram. A little girl lamb is a ewe, E W E. So this is a female, which is significant. It's a ewe lamb, and she is like a daughter to the poor man. She drinks out of his cup. She eats at his table. Some of you have dogs that you treat, like this man treated his, uh, his little lamb. Uh, you, you let it sleep on you. Or maybe you have a cat that you let sleep on your chest. Well, this man let this little lamb sleep on his chest. It was like a daughter to him. The word daughter in Hebrew is bat, B-A-T. Uh, which is also the first syllable of Bathsheba's name. Bathsheba, Bathsheba, is daughter of wealth or daughter of the oath. So Nathan is peppering this parable with clues about what he's what he's really talking about. This little lamb bought uh, his daughter uh, ate, drank and laid down with the poor man, just like Uriah, ate, drank and laid down with his wife. And that's what David tried to get Uriah to go back home and do with his wife. Remember, he gave him food and drink and he sent him home and said, go take off your shoes, uh, get your feet washed and lay down with your wife. That's what David tried to get Uriah to do, eat, drink and lay down with his little lamb, with his wife Bathsheba. But that's actually what David ended up doing with the lamb, right? With but, with Uriah's wife. He ate, uh, drank, and, and laid down with her, and that was his sin. He stole the little lamb of Uriah. But David misses all these illusions, and he explodes in fury at the treatment of the poor man, and he says, he shall surely die. He's, he's angry. Veins are popping out of his neck and his forehead. over. I get it. It's a really sad story. Honestly, I'm not taking anything away from that. You know, people love their animals and this man loved his his baby lamb and that's a really sad story. But there's no death penalty for killing a lamb in God's law. David knows this. David has killed a man. David has taken a woman who is not his wife and killed her husband. And yet He's glossing over this. Remember last week when uh, Joab sent news back to David about what had recurred, David just kind of shrugs his shoulder and says, well, that happens, you know. He just shrugs his shoulder. He says the sword devours one as well as the other. That was David's response. David is kind of, not kind of, he's diminishing the, the heinous nature of his own sin and exploding in fury at what ends up being a fake story i mean it's it's fiction and he's very angry about this it's always easier to be greatly offended at the smaller offenses of others and to kind of gently cover our own flagrant sins and that's exactly what david does and he says this man shall surely die now he immediately backs off of this he knows that there's no death penalty for oh by the way there is death penalty for rape and murder king david do you remember that in God's law that you're supposed to read and copy according to God's law. There is the death penalty for rape and murder. But immediately he corrects himself after calling for the death penalty. He said, oh, he shall restore fourfold. Well, where does he get that? Well, in Exodus 22, if you steal a sheep, you have to pay four sheep back. That is restitution for sheep stealing. So. So David understands, that's that's evidence that David knows the law. David knows what he's supposed to do. So David uh, says, he he pays fourfold. And and David, as we're going to see in a few minutes, David is going to have to make fourfold restitution for the life of Uriah. David focuses in on the word uh, pity. Um, He says this man had no pity. The rich man in Nathan's story thought it was a pity to take one from his own herd, but he had no pity on his neighbor's lamb. And now David focuses in on that word pity and he says the rich man had no pity. Talk about misplaced pity. David pities the little lamb. David pities the poor man and his children. David showed no pity for his real life neighbors, Uriah and Bathsheba. He just destroyed their lives because he's the king and he can do that. Well, after all this bluster, after David, you know, really poses and flexes his muscles and, and, and says this stuff, Nathan reveals to David, well, actually, I'm glad that you said that because you're the man I was talking about. And as this realization slams into David, here comes the rebuke. God holds David accountable for Uriah's death, lest there be any, any question. God says, you use the sword of the people of Ammon to kill my servant. Where does that put you, David? You used the sword of the people of Ammon to kill my faithful servant, Uriah. David, that means you're teaming up with the Ammonites. You're an idolater, David. You're acting like an idolater. And so because you killed David, uh, Uriah by the sword, the sword is not going to depart from your house, David. Uh, again, remember, jo- David made that glib comment, right? When, when he got that uh, message from Joab. He says, well, the sword devours one as well as the other. Okay, David, yeah, you're right. The sword is going to devour one as well as the other in your own house. Let's see how glib you are. Let's see how cavalier you are now making comments like that. There's going to be strife and conflict and death in David's house. And in his kingdom, for the rest of his reign as king, then we get Solomon's peaceful reign and then, and then we get the sword again and conflict is going to permanently divide the kingdom after Solomon. Because you use the sword, King David, the sword will be used on you and the sword is going to pursue you and it's going to bring you great heartache. Then Nathan says, just as you took, things are going to be taken from you. Again, remember Samuel warned the people when they asked for a king, even before they had Saul... Uh, Samuel reminded them, the kings take things. Kings take your daughters, and kings take your sons, and kings take your money. That's going to happen. And so now David is behaving just like that wicked, idolatrous king that Samuel warned them about. David took another man's wife. And so since David did this, Nathan said, well, your wives are going to be taken. But you took another man's wife in secret. Your wives are going to be taken out in the open. Just as Jesus said, Jesus said something similar to that, right? Jesus says, whatever is done in secret will be proclaimed on the housetops. So what David has tried to do and hide is now going to be a public banner, uh, open sin. And Nathan, Nathan's work here reminds us of Samuel's work. If you can think way back to when we studied Uh, Samuel's confrontations with Saul. When Saul sinned, Samuel reminded Saul, he says, Yahweh raised you up, Yahweh anointed you, Yahweh sent you on a mission and you failed to complete it. So Nathan does the very same thing with David. He says, Yahweh raised you up, Yahweh delivered you. He gave you everything that you could ever dream of having, yet you weren't satisfied that and you started taking from the poor man next door. All you had to do was ask, David, and I would have given you more. Instead, you despise the word of the Lord, and you despise God himself. So after this, David is convicted, and for the first time in this whole saga, he admits his sin. David says, what else can you say at this point, right? It doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be flowery. He just says, I have sinned. I have sinned against Yahweh. And here's the point where Saul differs from David. David takes this seriously and he means his repentance sincerely in a way that Saul didn't. You could say that even though Saul plotted evil against David, Saul was mostly ineffective at his plots because he never, he never caught David. And, and as a result, Saul's sins, you might argue, Saul's sins were never as heinous as David's sin here. What did Saul do? Remember, Saul didn't wait for Samuel to sacrifice that time. Uh, Saul sinned against the Lord's army. Uh, Saul spared Agag when he should have uh, executed him. And after the Spirit left Saul, after God's Holy Spirit left Saul, Saul went to consult a medium. And when you, when you add all these up and add into that his pursuit, his relentless pursuit of David and in, 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 uh, in, in hope of killing David, when you add all this up, you say, well, that's, that's pretty bad. But Saul never used his position as king to rape a woman and kill her husband. He never did that, as far as we know. All sin is grievous, but some sins warrant a more severe punishment than others. And when you compare David's sins to Saul's sins, you might argue that David's sins are more heinous. The difference, though, is that Saul never really repents. Saul never gives any indication that he is truly sorry for his sins and he desires forgiveness. David, on the other hand, is submissive to the word of God. You know, when, when Saul's confronted, he just starts throwing things, right? When, when Saul is upset, he just gets more angry. But David repents. That's why Nathan can say to David, as I said to you this morning, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Nathan says to David, you're forgiven. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. Yet... Even even with that, there's still punishment to come. There are still long-lasting consequences. You know why? Because there are always consequences to sin. Young men and women, if I've lost you so far, I want you to listen back up. There are always, always consequences to sin. You can't always put everything back the way it was before you sinned. Somehow, and, and this is a problem for all modern evangelicals, and we, we often get infected with this idea. We think that we aren't really being forgiving if we insist that, that uh, there are no long-lasting consequences. We we, we, think that, we think that we're being merciless if we do insist on there being results and consequences for sin. Um, we, we also have this thing where we think, well, we're being graceless if we say... I forgive you, but I don't trust you for a while. We think somehow that's graceless. But in fact, that's, that's necessary. Because some things in this life, once they're broken, they stay broken. And so sin always has consequences in such a way that, that you break things and they stay broken. If If you become a drunkard and... You're acting real foolishly, and you get behind the wheel of a car, and you you wrap your car around a tree, and you lose a leg, you can repent, and and everyone will forgive you, and God will forgive you, and, and we'll all love you, but your leg is not going to grow back, right? I mean, there, there are, there's, there's no part of that forgiveness that gets you your leg back, right? And And just think of all of these other other possible consequences in, in sin, uh, uh, consequences from sin. There's, we, and, and what I'm trying to illustrate is we have this naivete to the reality of the damage that sin does, and we perpetuate this casual approach to sin when we wallpaper over things and pretend that we can just put everything back. And typically, in the midst of this, it's the victims of the sin who get forgotten in the shuffle. When we rush to put everything back just like it was, and we, we hurry up and tell the victim, why don't you just get over it? Why don't you just forgive and get over it? Because the rest of us have, right? So, so God doesn't forgive David and then go resurrect Uriah. He, he could have. God could do that. God has resurrected men before, but God doesn't forgive David and go resurrect Uriah and put Uriah and Bathsheba back in their house and just, you know, pat them on the shoulder and say, see, it's all put back together. Everything's fine. No, Uriah is dead because of David's sin and Uriah stays dead. David's reputation is forever diminished because of this. So again, if I've lost you young people, especially this is for all of us. But I have a particular burden with you who are looking ahead at your lives and all of the manifold ways that you can mess up right now in such a way that, that you can break things that never get fixed, right? Is that, does that weight bear on anybody else the way it does on me when I think about my children, your children as well? Don't think that you can sin and then, well, if I get caught, I'll just repent and I'll just say I'm sorry And then everything will go back the way it was before. That's not the way it works. Sin has permanent effects. Sin leaves scars. There most certainly can be restoration. The gospel brings reconciliation, but that always comes through death, and resurrection, and that process of death and resurrection does not leave everything the same. It changes everything. Nothing stays the same. All things become new, but we want to short circuit that. We want to cut out the death part, and we want to get this sham of resurrection and sham of of reconciliation where there's no real peace, there's no real Sabbath, there's no real rest, and, and we rush through it. David will have his resurrection, but first he has to feel the full weight of what he's done. David's sins have repercussions because David has acted like the kings of the nations. He's given all the enemy nations a great occasion to blaspheme. All the nations around, because David has done this, all the kings of the nations can say, hey, look, see, David's one of us. You know how we act? Well, you know, if I want a girl, I go get a girl. And if I want that man dead, I say, kill that man. That's how I do it. That's how we all do it. We don't answer to anybody. If somebody gets in our way, we kill them. And if a smart mouthed prophet comes in and tells us what we did was wrong, we'll kill him too. That's how we do, that's how we act. And so David talks like he answers to Yahweh and Yahweh doesn't do anything about this. You see, that's, that's the kind of blasphemy that could be in the mouths of the kings of the nations. If God doesn't do something right here and now, if God allows David to continue, then David's behavior will reinforce everyone's opinions that there's nothing special about Yahweh. There's nothing special about the God of creation. He's like the other gods. He's powerless. He turns a blind eye to sin. He has no standards. David, in his sin, has led the nations to blaspheme. So the immediate consequence, says Nathan, is that the child that's born to you shall surely die. And because the child is going to die, it's going to be obvious to everyone in Israel and everyone outside of Israel that Yahweh is a God of righteousness. And he demands judgment and justice when sin is committed. Now, we might weep for the child as David does, God is going to receive this child into his arms, into Abraham's bosom, into paradise. The child's going to be fine. It's David who suffers. Now, remember back in uh, David's response how David demanded fourfold restitution? Well, that's what David is going to get for the life of Uriah. David is going to pay fourfold restitution. He's going to lose this son. He's going to lose Amnon. He's going to lose Absalom. He's going to lose Adonijah before it's over. David David loses four sons for the life of Uriah of Uriah. These are the two judgments that Nathan delivers from God. First of all, the sword will never depart from your house and this child would die. And so the sword never really does depart from David's house as we've seen. Let's let's keep on reading and I do want to finish this chapter and I'll I'll just make a couple of quick comments uh, along the way as we we wrap it up. Verse 15, uh, right in the middle of verse 15. Yahweh struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David And it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night in the ground. So the elders of the house arose and went into him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of Yahweh and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether Yahweh will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David is surprising everybody, even in his own house. Those closest to him didn't understand how his mind works here. He knew uh, that uh, the, the child would die and his punishment would be apparent to everybody. Uh, Well, well, we know that. I mean, we know that the child is gonna die. Uh, Nathan said the child would die, but David said, yeah, there's consequences. But I'm being restored to fellowship with the Lord, and David is conscious of the Lord's loving kindness in such a way that he thought it was suitable to approach God in prayer and pray constantly for the possibility that the Lord would grant him the life of his child. So he prays and cries and fasts while the child is yet living, because this is how God works often. God will pronounce judgment, but then when we repent, he relieves the judgment. Jonah goes to Nineveh and he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Was Nineveh overthrown in 40 days? No. Why? Because they repented. David knows that God works this way and so he repents. But when the child dies, David doesn't go into mourning there. He resumes his normal way of life. He goes home. He washes his face. He sits down to eat. After he worships, uh, which is what the, his servants tried to get him to eat and wash up and, and, and live a somewhat normal life. Uh, but but he doesn't do it until after the child dies. He, uh, he worships God, uh, he breaks his fast, and he asks for food. This confuses everyone, but David answers, you know, while the child was alive, I thought, you know, the Lord might be gracious to me, but now I have come to terms with the Lord's answer, and now I find hope in the fact that I will be reunited one day with this child. I'll go to him, he won't come back to me, But we're all headed that direction. It doesn't work this way, but we're all headed that direction. So I'm going to see him again. David was hurt, but he was content with the Lord's answer. Verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now Yahweh loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of Yahweh. So David returns to Bathsheba and they conceive a second son. Solomon is the replacement for the dead son. One son of David died, another is raised up. This replacement theme we've seen all throughout uh, the book of Samuel. Samuel replaced the sons of Eli. Saul replaced the sons of Samuel. David replaced the sons of Saul. Now we have Solomon's older brother who dies as a penalty for sin, And Solomon is lifted up to sit on the throne. A son of David is a substitute. David's son dies instead of him, just as David's greater son is going to die in all of our place. David named the boy Solomon. But the Lord, through the prophet Nathan, he gives him another name. He gives him the name Jedidiah, which means favored by Yah. Now we don't ever hear this name again for Solomon, but what this means is that Yahweh is designating this son as the heir of the promise. Just as God designated Jacob as the son of the promise, uh, just as God designated Joseph out of all of his brothers as the heir of the promise. So now God is saying to David and to everyone, look, this is the son who's going to carry on the line. We've got other brothers, there's uh, Amnon and Adonijah and Absalom, we've got other brothers, but this is the one who's going to be the son of the promise and now God makes that clear right here. Now that the kingdom is restored, we can get back and win the war. We're about two years later, Israel is still fighting with Ammon and you know that conflict that started all the way back when the king of Ammon died and David sent messengers to comfort the prince of Ammon and then the prince cut off their robes and cut off their beards. Um, they're still mired in that very same conflict. David's soap opera has stalled this progress. It's stalled the advance of the kingdom. Everything's been stagnant when we've been dealing with the sin. But now the sin has been dealt with. David does what he should have done at the very beginning of all this, and that's to ride out with his men and put the enemy down. Let's pick up for th- verse 26, and we'll finish it from there. Now, Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I've taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and he took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. And he also brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it. And put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did all he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all his people returned to Jerusalem. Joab has the enemy pushed back. David comes in to strike the finishing blows. David subjugates Ammon. He imposes forced labor on them. Depending on how you translate that curious phrase, cross over to the brickworks. So that's one that confuses interpreters. Uh, what he the job he might have put them to is tearing down the Molechs, tearing down the idols, destroying their own idols, which is a good idea. It's something poignant and personal about destroying your own idols yourself. And that might have been the work he put them to. David accepts the crown of the king of Ammon. He returns to Jerusalem. This seems like kind of an anticlimactic story uh, or anticlimactic ending to the story of this long war. But when you think about it, if this were a chronicle of one of the pagan kings, you would have all this stuff about his exploits and all these uh, victories, but you wouldn't have anything about his errors his errors would not have even been in the footnotes. But with the kings of Israel, what's most important is how Yahweh deals with them and with their sin and the battles and the exploits are in the footnotes. They're secondary. The main story is David's sin and his relationship to God and his repentance and his restoration because kings who serve Yahweh are not at the top of the pecking order like the pagan kings are. They serve Yahweh. They're always submitting to God. Their power is never absolute. So, in wrapping this together and putting this uh, to bed today, it's really good to see Nathan's ministry to David, especially today. That God didn't leave Nathan. Uh, sorry, God didn't leave David alone, but God sent His prophet to speak to His king. Today is All Saints Day as we've sung all saints' hymns and read and shared together in these prayers and we'll continue to do that. We give thanks today for all the saints of all the ages, all those men and women who have taught us, who have served us, who have loved us, who have encouraged us, who have corrected us. Both those in the church militant, those who are still with us, those of the church triumphant who are rejoicing around the throne Of Jesus in heaven, we give thanks for all of them. We give thanks for all of the saints because we know that we're not left to ourselves. We're not left on our own to struggle and somehow sort through all of this on our own. Other people, the saints, are God's grace to us the way that Nathan was God's grace to David. Left to himself, David might have never repented. He might have thought that he'd gotten away with everything but that would have only emboldened him to go on to greater sins and spoil everything that God had given him. Destroy the kingdom, destroy his house and destroy everything else along with it. God sent Nathan to correct David and call him to repentance because even the king needs to be held accountable. Not even King David has a purely one-on-one relationship with God that leaves out all other humans. God never saves people in solitude. God always saves people in communion. And if King David needed a Nathan, then that means I need you and you need me and y'all need each other. If King David needs a Nathan, then we need each other. We tend to treat the church community at our worst. We treat the communion of saints as a nice thing that's there when you need it, you know, when you need it, it's nice to have it. But otherwise, don't bother me. Don't ask anything of me. Don't require anything of me. Don't expect me to be there when I'm not feeling it. If I don't want to, I don't need the fellowship of the saints. I don't need the communion of the saints unless I'm ready for it. And then when I'm ready for it, well, then, you know, roll out the red carpet. Look who's here today. I'm, I'm here. Y'all, you know, love me while I'm here. But otherwise, leave me alone. Bug off. That's At our worst, that's how we treat the communion of saints. Okay, you want to live like that. What happens when you really get off the rails? What happens when you sin in big or small ways? It doesn't even have to be as big as David's sin. What happens when you haven't invested in us and we haven't been able to invest in you? What happens Who's going to speak up and help you? Who's going to direct you? Who are you going to listen to? So then, if David needs Nathan, you've got to have at least one Nathan. I pray you all do. I pray everyone's got someone who they're invested in, someone who's invested in them and they've invested in. So be deliberate about building the kinds of relationships that increase accountability, not the kinds that decrease it. So that together, we can cover sins the only way that they can ever be covered. And that's with the blood of Jesus. And we have to have each other to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for how you have uh, shown us that you don't leave us in our sins. Just as you pursued David, so you pursue us. And Father, we ask that you would uh, continually uh, give us the strength in your Holy Spirit that we might uh, live uprightly, that we might uh, uh, be, be free from uh, the kinds of sins that, that destroy us and that when we do sin, we would repent quickly. We wouldn't try to cover it up. Father, strengthen us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.